All right, morning, everyone. Father, as we discuss children being baptized over these coming weeks, it reminds us of what your son has done because every baptism is a public profession or uh, public revelation of what has already transpired spiritually. It is revealing physically that we desire to identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as we already have identified with his death, burial, and resurrection spiritually. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd use these sermons not just to help us to think about our children uh, being baptized, whether they should or shouldn't be at this point in their lives, but also think about what Christ has done for us. And as we try to examine the salvation of our children, I pray that it would be a benefit to everyone here, young and old alike, to consider whether they're saved, that we would look for some of these evidences in our own lives as we talk about male leadership in the home. I pray that you would challenge us to apply that and to help the men to be leaders um, other wives and children. I, th- I thank you for this time, Lord. If there's anything that's not in my notes that you would have me share, bring that to mind. Anything I shouldn't share, just allow my eyes to pass over it. And I thank you, Lord, for baptism. I thank you for it. Like, I thank you for communion that is a reminder of what Christ has done for us and, and what a privilege it is, Lord, to come together every, every Lord's Day and to worship, um, giving thanks. For, for the sacrifice that was made for us, Lord. We pray you can take pleasure in this time that we would be focused on you and how you want to speak to us through your word. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. The title this morning's sermon is When Children Should Be Baptized. Part one, there will be a few sermons on this leading up to our baptism service on, on Easter. So when my children getting older, it occurred to me that this is the first time that we've had a baptism service approaching where I was really entertaining some of my children being baptized. So part of the reason is that we haven't had any baptisms in the church for a while, um, but also just because my children are reaching that age where I had to be thinking more seriously about it. And so this has led to many conversations in our home. Most, many, of our bapti- or many of our Bible studies, or perhaps um, almost all of them for that matter, have related to baptism, uh, what it is and what it isn't, and whether our children are saved and what it means if they are saved, that that's the next logical step. Some of the things we'll be talking about But I share all that to say that what occurred to me was if I thought that this was really important for me to be sharing with um, my family, my wife and children, then I thought it would also be important to share with my church family. I haven't preached on something like this before. We've talked about baptism a little bit over a few sermons. I don't know that I've ever had an entire sermon on baptism, but I know that we have not talked about, maybe like we should have before, when children should be baptized or even when children should not be baptized. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. When I finish these sermons, we're going to have some sermons on the vision of the church. Every few years, we talk about the vision of our church and where we, um, you know, are going or where we hope to go, where we are, why we do some of the things we do, why we don't do certain things. And the last time I preached that was over seven years ago, January 2014, so I'm probably overdue to share about the vision of the church again. But the reason I mention this is I want to share something about uh, our view of fathers in the home that relates not just to baptism, but also relates to our vision, uh, vision for the church. And so you can almost see this discussion as of fathers and their involvement in their children being baptized as part of our view of fathers or part of our uh, vision for the church. And this brings us to lesson one. At WCC, fathers play a large part in shepherding their families. At WCC, fathers play a large part in shepherding their families. And it says at WCC because there are some churches where 
the elders carry much of this responsibility. We would say the elders carry an unbiblical amount of responsibility for, for families, for wives, and for children. And at WCC, what we try to do is we try to take an amount of that responsibility and we put it back on the shoulders of the fathers where we believe it belongs. Now, let me give you a few examples of how this kind of plays out here. Um, because of our view of fathers having involvement or leadership over their homes and elders not having a, as much responsibility for what happens with the different families in the church, it also allows us to in, want to involve those fathers or even not just fathers but young men in the service or in our worship or, or in the different things that take place at our church. For example, at some churches, only the elders are going to pray. If, if there's a worship service, it's only the elders that are going to, one of the elders that's going to read scripture. It's, in fact, at some churches, it's only one of the elders that's even able to preach, and that would be the teaching elder. It's only the elders who are going to be administ- able to administer the communion elements. It's only the elders that are going to be able to baptize people. Now, hopefully, you know that we try to involve other men, not, um, non-elders, and even young men in our service. You'll see young men who will pray, who will read scripture. We've had other men who preach during the service. We have men who are involved in communion, whether they're delivering the prayer for a communion or the devotion. We have the young men. I know things have been different because of the, the season with COVID, but we have young men who distribute the elements. In some churches, there's no men except for the elders who would go anywhere near any of the ordinances. They would never go near the elements. It would only be an elder who would be able to baptize people. We have men uh, who are involved in leading the music, share some of the teaching and preaching load. I think during this season, it's all non-elders who are leading the home fellowships. Even though I've been attending with my family, the Motzkus' home fellowship, and Pastor Nathan attends one on Tuesday night, I don't think, oh wait, Andrew Chris is leading a home fellowship. But otherwise, the other home fellowships, are, which is a wonderful thing to me, are being led by other men in the church, allowing them to exercise and use the gifts that we're convinced that God has given them. And kind of along these lines, what I've been building up to, we are encouraged to see men baptize their children. In some churches, you'd never see a father baptize his son. It would only be an elder to do that. Now, to be clear, there have been a few times where a father did ask me to baptize one of their children in their place. We are happy to do that, but we also consider it a wonderful thing to be able to see fathers have that privilege of baptizing their children. And we do things this way for two reasons. Most obviously, we believe that this is what is biblical. We don't believe that some of those sanctions or restrictions that you might see in other churches for only the elders being able to do these things are biblical. So we, we see men being gifted in different ways, and, we like, and young men. We, we like to see people be able to use the gifts that God has given them. And then second, we believe very strongly that God has called men to be leaders in the home and in the church. And so we want to provide opportunities for men to use those uh, to be leaders or even training, you might say, for them to, to do so. And so because of this view, we generally lean on husbands to lead their homes versus taking that leadership on ourselves. You could even, maybe a better way to say it is this. We look to fathers to help us in the shepherding of the families in this church. It's not as though there's this responsibility that we, um, you know, are trying to take from the fathers, 
or don't want to take from the fathers instead it's we're inviting the fathers to help us with the shepherding because we think that they can do in in some respects are, are more equipped and can do a better job in shepherding their families than we can so we look to the husbands to help us in that respect by asking them to oversee their families one such example of this took place last year when everything happened with COVID. I mention this because we're talking about our uh, desire to see men come alongside us, help us in the shepherding of families. And we had an exact example of that taking place. I did not doctor this quote up whatsoever. This is exactly what Andrew Chris shared. When, if you remember when everything happened with COVID, the four of us were up on stage and he said, husbands, as elders, we need you and your families need you to lead them during this time your wives have questions please guide them shepherd your wives and children wives please look to your husbands for leadership we want to be completely available to your husbands so that if they need help we can help them and then they can get back to you so it it wouldn't be accurate to say that we um, you know don't want to hear from wives or, or wouldn't value their thoughts but it would be that we would want to hear from wives through their husbands and then we want the wives to receive the shepherding that they need but having that come from their husbands i'll say that there's no part of me that wants to be esteemed by any women in this church except for my wife and my daughters and i suppose my my mom <laughs> i'm i'm very glad for all of the other women in this church to hold their husbands in vi- very high regard and to respect them there's there's no part of me that covets the the you know the respect or praise of any women in this church but it is a great blessing to me to see women who are able to hold their husbands in high regard and to and to uh, really respect them now so the way that this can play out is a, a woman could come to me with a question that she has and I can be happy to answer that but a much better scenario for me would be that that husband could ask me and I could help him develop the answer to that question and then he can go back and he can relay that to his wife and then he's the one that gets to be the spiritual leader of his wife she gets to look up to him he she gets to see him as the one who is spiritually mature who has the answers to her questions and i would i appreciate that situation much more than a wife looking up to me or thinking that i'm the spiritual one that has the answers for her and her family now it's not to say that a husband is going to have all the answers in fact what an ideal situation would be when a husband doesn't know the answer to something that he might come to me or one of the elders ask for some help we provide some resources we equip him for them for him to then go home to his wife and to share with her the answers to her questions and then she's able to look up to him and to respect him and i mention this because we take a similar approach with the children in the church we we look to fathers to deal with the children this is one reason for those of you who can remember after the church grew and we knew that i mean okay let me back up this is the it seems the model or approach that many churches take once they get large enough they hire a youth pastor and then if the if they feel particularly gifted then that youth pastor can also serve as the worship leader right you get two role two roles out of one position and that and at grace baptist i guess they hired me despite the fact that i could never be their worship pastor but i said i'll try to do my best with it with the youth ministry well when our church grew we never entertained that there was never any discussion of us hiring a youth pastor and one reason we didn't is because we already have a bunch of youth pastors here don't we who are all the youth pastors in the church i mean you can raise your hands it's all of the fathers we expect the fathers to be the pastors for their 
for their children. And so we see plenty, plenty of, of youth pastors here, and we love the idea of the fathers being the shepherds for those children. Along these lines, we accept, expect fathers to determine when their children should be baptized. We expect fathers to determine when their children should take communion. And, and if that's all you've ever known, I mean, if by chance you've always only attended this church, you should know that there are churches that do things much differently than that. And, and I don't mind that they do. I, I kind of see where they're coming from. In 1 Corinthians 11, people are getting sick and they're dying because they are partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. So some leaders, some elders look at that and they say, well, it's a very serious thing how people partake of the Lord's Supper uh, and even who partakes of it. And so we have a responsibility to ensure that there wouldn't be anyone taking communion that we don't think is, is ready yet. And so they, these are churches that have what's called closed or closed communion. We have open communion. We allow people and especially fathers to make that determination. And so, I, again, I don't mind churches that do that differently, but that's just not the way, that we, the way that we do it here. If people come in and they're convinced of their salvation, then they're able to partake. But then beyond that, we expect the fathers to be responsible with whether their children partake. And the reason that I wanted to, to lead with this or discuss this is there's nothing that I'm going to be able to say in these few weeks that's going to change this reality, that we believe the fathers are the ones who need to determine when their children should be baptized. So a, a father could come to me, and, we, and he might ask me if I think that his child is ready to be baptized, but there's probably not much that he's going to be able to tell me that's going to allow me to make that determination better than him. So we're available. We're glad to talk through things, try to help any way that we can, but, but we're convinced that it's, it's fathers who are going to have the most familiarity with their children and whether they're saved and whether they're at a point in their lives, whether they should, whether they should be baptized or take communion. <clears throat> Speaking of when children should be baptized, this brings us to lesson two. Salvation is the requirement for baptism. Salvation is the requirement for baptism. Let me introduce two terms that are crucially important in this discussion. There are primarily two views of baptism. The first view I'll discuss is known as paedo-baptism, or more commonly known as infant baptism. If you hear in, in the word paedo-baptism, paedo, think of pediatrician or like a, an infant doctor. And so that's why paedo-baptism is baptism for, for infants or, um, you know, baby baptism. And this is the view that's held by uh, Catholics, and it's the view that's held by other denominations or churches that are much closer to Catholicism than we are. I don't mean this as a joke, but we would look at these churches and we would feel like following the Reformation, they did not reform or break away from the Catholic Church as much as we think that they should. So when I first became a Christian, so my whole life was like in the Catholic Church, I become a Christian, and then it's obvious to me that there's Catholic and then there's Protestant, and I kind of thought that everything hung under Protestant, and I didn't see much distinction between any of those churches that were under that, under that Protestant umbrella. Well, a few years ago, when I developed greater familiarity with Presbyterian theology, it kind of, in my mind, I kind of began to look at it like this. You've got Catholic, 
You've got Protestant, and then from Protestant, you've got Presbyterian, which is a lot closer to Catholic, and then Baptist out this way. So even though we're not necessarily a Baptist church, we're Baptistic in our theology. And so kind of on the spectrum with Catholic here and Baptist here, Presbyterian is a lot closer to Catholic than we are. There have been some times when I have been studying uh, Presbyterian theology, and I was surprised by how similar or in some respects even identical it was to Catholicism. There were some times when I was talking to people who were part of Presbyterian churches who maybe did not know that I was uh, formerly a Catholic, and they were telling me some of the things that they heard in their church, and I thought, that is exactly the same thing I saw or I heard when I was Catholic. And so, paedo-baptism, this is the view that's held by those churches that are closest to Catholicism. Um, And that's why, in many respects, we see, or I would say, infant baptism is little more than a holdover from Catholicism. We don't think that infant baptism is found any place in Scripture. In fact, most Presbyterians will even acknowledge that this past week, just listening to a debate between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul to see if, if there are some things that I could glean for this sermon. John MacArthur begins, and he says that you will not find one baby baptized in Scripture. R.C. Sproul gets up, and guess what he says? That's correct. One of the strong similarities between Presbyterians and Catholics is in that instead of holding to Scripture, they're going to hold to tradition. Much Presbyterian theology is rooted in in traditions, and so even when Presbyterians often argue for infant baptism, they are going to argue church tradition versus arguing Scripture. So that's why John MacArthur got up, and he basically said, don't listen to anything the R.C. Sproul says that comes from church tradition, you know, because they're going to debate each other. Just listen to to what I say that comes from God's Word. And so one of the things you see is the absence of any, any babies baptized in the, in the Bible. Now, the view that we do hold is credo-baptism, or commonly known as believer's baptism. And in the word credo-baptist, you can hear the word creed or confession. And this will help you remember that credo-baptism is believer's baptism. Essentially, credo-baptism is for individuals who have a creed or have a confession. Now, maybe I say that, and you say, well, I don't know that much about it. Like, if I was to say, what confession do you hold to? You know, do you hold to the London Baptist Confession? Are you, are you six, a 1689 person? And you're kind of like, this is very foreign. I don't know what that is. I don't know anything about confessions. Well, I'll say this. If you're a Christian, you have a confession. If you are a Christian, you have a confession. You have made a confession, and what's that? Christ Jesus is Lord. That is a confession. So, credo-baptism means you have a creed or a confession. You are a believer. And so, we see baptism as something for believers. Now, as you might guess, creating sermons involves many choices because it's possible to go in so many different directions. And whenever I'm sitting down studying, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how far do I go here? How far do I go there? And for this sermon, I had to decide how far do I want to go down discussing paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Because this is such a settled issue in our church, I didn't feel like I needed to go very far there. I don't have people coming up to me entertaining, baptizing babies, and wondering if, it, if that's something that they should do. Now, with that said, if you happen to have any questions about credo-baptism versus paedo-baptism or baptistic theology, although I don't, definitely don't consider my, myself an expert in a Presbyterian theology, you, I would encourage you to come and ask me. I'll do my best to try to answer any of your questions and get back to you. For now, I just want you to consider one. What I will do, though, over these few weeks is when we encounter something in Scripture that 
uh, press that looks to that discussion between credo-baptism and paedo-baptism, I will point it out, and I'll say why we fall this way, and I'll probably bring some light to what paedo-baptists would say, simply that, so that you can be informed and so you can have any, you know, some healthy conversations with any of your Presbyterian friends. And just to be clear about that, that is, that is one thing I'd like to say. There are some um, wonderful, tremendous Presbyterians you are not going to hear me praise Mormons. You're not going to hear me praise Catholics. You are uh, not going to hear me praise Jehovah's Witnesses. I can say nice things about them, that they could be very moral or hardworking or things like that, but I can say, but I can praise some Presbyterians who have been a great, who have influenced me very wonderfully. R.C. Sproul passed away. I'm, not, I'm always bad at guessing when it was that someone passed away, but just a great man of God. You might be surprised to learn some of the other people that maybe you've listened to for some years are Presbyterians. And so there can be great Presbyterians, but there are just some of these ways fundamentally that we disagree, that we disagree with them. But it's, I mean, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul are a great example. Sharing the stage, both having tremendous appreciation for each other. I don't know that there's anyone that it seems John MacArthur sought more highly of than R.C. Sproul. So even when I discuss any of the differences between um, Baptistic and Presbyterian theology, it's not to say that I don't think that they're Christians or anything along those lines. It's just to say that we see these differences or we interpret Scripture differently or we choose not to hold a church tradition regarding, these, regarding this uh, theological issue or question. Now, with that in mind, I do want to give you just one verse from Acts 2, and here's the, that I think looks to this. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and this is going to be the first day of Christian baptisms. Now, there have been baptisms up to this point. I could argue that at least, um, you know, Naaman was baptized in the Old Testament, and then most famously, John the Baptist was performing baptisms. We would not say that John the Baptist was performing Christian baptisms. He, a Christian baptism is a baptism that identifies with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and Jesus had not died and been buried and resurrected at the time that John was performing his baptisms. So those could not be Christian baptisms. Instead, what baptism was John performing? A baptism of what? A repentance. He was performing baptisms of repentance. That's correct. And so the, day, the first day of Christian baptisms as we know them was Pentecost. Now, in Acts 2, at Pentecost, Peter is preaching the gospel. And then listen to this verse. 40, Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the important thing to notice is it was only those who were baptized who had what? What did it say? Received his word. Received his word, which is to say heard and believed. I don't even know how you could try to apply that to babies. There are some other places where you might say a household is baptized and you speak into silence, you make some assumptions and say, well, there must be children there. Well, the Bible doesn't say that there's children there, but even that would be more reasonable than saying that there were some infants who were baptized here. In fact, I would say that there were probably people here, because it says that those who received his word, that implies that there were some who did not receive his word. So there were probably plenty of people present who were not baptized because they were not believing. And so the whole point is this. It's very evident that it was the baptism was for those who believed. Now, because we believe our children must believe to be saved or must be Christians to be baptized, 
I want to give you some evidences over the next couple sermons of salvation to look for in your children's lives. While now, to be clear, no parent can know absolutely certain certainty uh, with absolute certainty or know absolutely certainly that their child is a Christian. I do hope that these should help fathers make some helpful determinations. Um, and two other points before we jump into this: these are the exact same evidences that Katie and I use. These are the exact same things that we talk about. Now, I don't know about most of the, maybe some of the mothers would be able to identify with this, especially if you have young children. Katie and I don't feel like we have a whole lot of time together. In fact, many, we can't leave, you know, it seems hard to leave Lydia alone. About the only time that Katie and, our, Katie and I are alone are, well, two times, either when we're going over the sermon, which that time can still be interrupted, or after the children go to bed at night. That's when, that's when we have some time together. Now, when our children go to bed, guess who else typically wants to go to bed? Because she's so exhausted. Katie does. And so, but if Katie's not too exhausted and she wants to stay up and talk, then our conversation, I'm not sure, maybe 90% of the time goes to our children and how they're doing and those things that encourage us about them or those things that discourage us or those things that are leaving us concerned about them. And when we're having these conversations about our children, which is really to say conversations about their faith or conversations about their salvation, we are discussing these exact same evidences that I'm sharing, that I'm going to share with you. So all that to say, I'm sharing with you the same approach that we take. Now, second, these are pretty good evidences to look for in anyone's life, child or adult alike. Probably the most terrifying verses in, in all of Scripture could very well be in Matthew 7 when Jesus says that many are going to come to him on that day and say what? Lord, Lord, didn't we? And they're confident in their works. They list the things that they did. They did not have a relationship with him. He says, depart from me. I, he doesn't say, you lost your salvation. He doesn't say, I knew you and then stopped knowing you. You did all these wonderful things when you were saved. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Apparently, you who practice lawlessness. So it seems that they had done some number of things that maybe made them feel good about themselves or made them feel religious, but they'd also engaged in an amount of wickedness. And Jesus says he sends them to hell. There was no relationship. The part that's terrifying about it isn't that these people went to hell. It's that they thought they were going to heaven. They seemed to be convinced that they were Christians. These are the people. They're not Hindus or Buddhists that would look at Jesus. You know, Hindus and Buddhists don't look at Jesus and call him Lord. And so because of that, these are really good evidences for all of us to consider. We should all examine our salvation. So these are the same evidences that I have considered in my own life. I look at these and I consider whether these evidences are there or not so that I can be confident in my salvation. I don't want to get this wrong, and I would not want my church to get this wrong. So even though we're talking about determining whether our, our children should be baptized or we're talking about whether our children are saved, I think all of us should be able to tune into this and be considering whether we see these evidences because this serves two purposes. You can listen to this and you can say, oh, you know, well, this sounds very discouraging that we're going to be talking about whether we're really Christians or not. I wouldn't say that it has to be very discouraging. It can be very encouraging if you're listening and you become more confident in your salvation because we talk about these evidences and what? You see them. You believe they are evident in your life. So I hope that for those of us who are saved, 
we would leave here. We know, we, we know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and be convinced that we, we are saved. And for those who aren't saved, that they could listen to these evidences and then be, be concerned that they are not saved. And hopefully take that to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I was, I'm considering these evidences and I don't see them in my life. Why don't I? You know, he is a God who saves. Cry out in mercy then for God to, for God to save you. So let's consider the first evidence. The first evidence of salvation to look for in your children, part one, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Repentance is required for salvation, and it comes from godly sorrow over sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. So you can see here that Paul is contrasting two sorrows. He talks about godly sorrow, which produces repentance, that leads to salvation, and then a worldly sorrow, which just produces death. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow, it's a sorrow that all of us have experienced. There's no redemptive value in it, but it's not immoral or necessarily wrong because it's the sorry that the sorrow you experience when you did something wrong and you're going to suffer or be punished as a result of it. And there's nothing wrong with experiencing that sorrow. But this is, it's not a sorrow that saves. This is the sorrow that is found in every single courtroom when that verdict is, uh, is read. This is a sorrow that every child experiences when they learn that they're about to be spanked. This is a sorrow that every adult experiences when they've done something wrong and they learn that they're going to have to suffer the consequences of their actions. So basically, worldly sorrow, it is not a sorrow over the sin itself. It is a sorrow associated with the consequences of that sin. Now, godly sorrow, on the other hand, it is sorrow over the sin. Basically, it's sorrow associated with knowing that we have sinned against a perfectly holy and just and loving God who gave his son for our sins. So godly sorrow it doesn't just desire to avoid the consequences, it also desires to have victory over that sin. When people have worldly sorrow, all they want is to be able to avoid the consequences in the future. But a godly sorrow is a desire not to commit that sin any longer, which is why it produces repentance, which is a turning from that sin to Christ, which is why Paul says that godly sorrow leads to salvation. Now, regarding our children, here's what to look for. When our children sin, do they ever confess it of their own volition? Do our children ever come to us because they are being crushed under the guilt and conviction of what they've done, which can be a very strong evidence that the Holy Spirit is in, has sealed them, is active in their lives and working in them to bring about this repentance? Because when a child acknowledges sin after they're caught, and I hope all the children tune into this, whenever, if I could just even speak right to the children, whenever you acknowledge what you've done wrong because you got caught, it doesn't mean as much to us because you're already caught. And so when you look sorry, we can't tell if you're faking it or not. We can't tell if you're trying to avoid being punished or not. Now, we're hoping that what we're seeing 
is godly sorrow over what you've done, but there's still that nagging question in the back of our minds as parents that you might just be acting sorry at this moment so that you don't get punished. But when a child of their own volition comes and shares a sin that they have committed and they are so convicted by it that they need to be unburdened and they're coming and they want help and they want you to pray with them and they want victory over this, few things as a parent are more, are more beautiful than that. If you think for a moment, what was it about Psalm 51, David's great psalm of repentance that was so pleasing to God? It was his contrition over his sin. Well, if God feels that way about his spiritual children, so too, earth, so too do earthly parents feel that way about our physical children. And so few things as parents will be greater blessings to us than to see our children experiencing genuine contrition or godly sorrow over the sin that they have committed. But if we have to wait until you get caught, and then, then there's no real guarantee for us. Then we're wondering what's really happening in your hearts or not. Now, the next part of lesson three. Evidence is a salvation to look for in your children, part two, spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit. And this flows from the previous evidence, these somewhat go together. It's a godly sorrow that produces repentance, and then it is a repentance that's going to produce spiritual fruit. Because if children, or anyone for that matter, have genuinely repented, there's going to be fruit produced as a result. I've I've mentioned this before. If there's even a few people who haven't heard it or just need to be reminded of it, it's worth mentioning again. Unfortunately, we typically only think of repentance in terms of stopping. And that's a, that's a very poor view. In fact, that's why most people fail to repent, because the Bible does not talk exclusively about stopping without also starting the accompanying behavior. Or to use the biblical language in Ephesians 4 or Colossians 3, we say putting off and then putting on. But the failure is we typically try to stop or, or put off without also putting on. And so, because if you think this way, whenever you stop something or put off something, a vacuum is created. What is going to be placed in this emptiness that's created once you've stopped something? There must be some fruit. I mean, that's where Jesus told that parable about the unclean unclean spirit that departs from this house. The house is left empty, which is to say it's not filled with the Holy Spirit, or it's not filled with some godly, something godly or some spiritual fruit. And so the demons return, and then it's even worse for the person. And so when we put off, we've also got to put on. So it's not just about stopping, it's also about starting. And so my point is, if children have genuinely repented, then there is also going to be some accompanying fruit that begins to be produced in their lives. Now, just so you know, besides me mentioning Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, that this isn't just my opinion— if we think of the man who, at least in my mind, is most associated in Scripture with preaching repentance, it would probably, probably be John the Baptist. He's preaching baptisms of repentance. And what did he say when, when he was preaching repentance or when people were coming out to have a baptism of repentance? He didn't just say, hey, repent and stop all that stuff. Hey, you terrible sinners, stop all the terrible sins you're committing. What did he say to them? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you've genuinely repented, you have to bear fruit that legitimizes or demonstrates that your repentance has been genuine or sincere. Paul communicated something similar, or I wouldn't even say similar. I'd say Paul communicated something identical. Acts 26, 20, Gentiles should 
repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul says, if the Gentiles have repented, then there's going to be deeds or work or fruit that's produced in their lives, evidencing that that repentance was sincere. Jesus communicated something similar. Matthew 7, 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't know that you can get much, uh, find a much clearer way of saying in Scripture that a tree, which represents a person that does not have fruit, is going to go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if there are people and there's no fruit in their lives, then they are going to hell. Now you listen to that and you say, well, does that mean that we're saved by our fruit? No, not at all. It's saying that fruit serves as the evidence that we are saved, and when there is no fruit, then that serves as evidence that we are unsaved. One more time, Jesus said, Matthew 7, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, not thrown into the fire because there was no fruit to save them, but because there was no fruit showing that they were saved. When Jesus preached the parable of the soils, he made the point that when the seed, which is the word of God, takes root in someone's heart, then fruit is produced. Matthew 13, 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So if, if we have believed the word and are saved, then fruit will be produced. Now, it's not to say that everyone's going to produce the same amount, it, uh, some people, it says, are going to produce a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. But this is what I, while I can tell you that everyone doesn't produce the same amount, I can tell you that every Christian does produce at least some, or it's evidence that they're not Christians. Probably the clearest place in Scripture making this point is James 2, where three different times in James 2.17, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. James 2.20, faith apart from works is useless. James 2.26, faith apart from works is dead. It's very clear here that for there to be a faith that is not accompanied with works, it is a non-saving, it's not a salvific faith. And so James uses the example, so you say, is there a faith or a belief that is not saving? Yes, James gives us an example of it. He says demons have that faith. There are no atheist demons. Every time you see demons in the pages of Scripture, especially in, the, well, particularly in the Gospels, they have this tremendous theology. I mean, the G- demons just proclaim these wonderful truths about Christ, but they're not saved because they're not performing any works for God. They don't have a, a faith that is accompanied by works. And so people that simply believe in God but don't have any works, that serves as evidence that that is not a saving faith. Now, I want to be clear about what I'm convinced is a, along these lines, a bad evidence of salvation and a good evidence. And let me even preface that by being clear about this. Praise God if you are able to pray with your child to receive Christ. If, if a child was to come to you or you were to be talking about what Christ has done and your child looks at you and asks to pray or wants to pray with you that Christ would be his or her savior. I mean, what, what, I can't imagine many things more wonderful as parents for something like that to take place. With that said, you probably know from some of my past sermons that we're not, um, 
that big into, we're not like, let's say, a sinner's prayer family. I'm actually pretty concerned about the damage that can be done when children are told, you said those words, and now you're a Christian. You said those words, and now you're saved. And this has led to many children who become teenagers, who become young adults, and then who even become adults, who don't live for the Lord, but they're convinced that they're Christians because they said this prayer when they were a child, and then some usually well-meaning adult that they held in high regard looked at them and said, you're now a Christian because you said these words. And so I think a very important word to put in there after you pray with your children is the word if. To tell your children, if you prayed this prayer and repented of, or let me say it like this, you prayed this prayer, and if you have repented of your sins, and if you have put your faith in Christ, then you are saved. And then your child will remember that if they have repented of their sins, and if they have put their faith in Christ, then they are saved. And if they haven't done that, then they are not saved. And then if they get older, and this is what we would desire. I believe we'd all agree that this is what we want for our children. Let's say our children get older and they're in the world. They're getting drunk or they're fornicating or they're habitually lying or they're looking at things they shouldn't. And they feel very comfortable doing these things because they remember the time that they were a child that their parents said, you're a Christian because you said these words and they, they believe that it's, it, they can do these things and still be saved. We don't want that. We would desire that our children would then say, I remember where my parents said, if I repented and if I put my faith in Christ, then I'm a Christian. But right now, it doesn't look like I've done that. Right now, it doesn't look like I've repented of my sins. In fact, it looks like I'm throwing myself into them. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the healthy struggle against sin that, that Jake Moskis preached on a few weeks ago in Romans 7 that is part of every Christian's life. Romans 7 is this wonderful safe haven for every Christian as they're battling against the flesh, and we do what we don't want to do, and we don't do what we want to do. That's meant to give us encouragement or hope when we are Christians and we're fighting that good fight against sin. It is not meant to encourage people to think that when they're living like unbelievers that they actually are Christians. And God forbid as parents that our children would ever be unsaved but think they are saved because of things that we said to them when they were younger. And so, and so just tell your children the things that, that the Bible itself says, that if you repent and if you put your faith in Christ, then you are a Christian. And rejoice anytime you have one of these wonderful opportunities to pray with your children, but, but please never, for, for God's sake, tell your children that because they said these words, they're saved. There's, no, there's nothing in Scripture that should give us any sort of confidence that there's some incantation or just saying these words allows us to be Christians. If we, if we use the word if with our children, it'll cause our children to look behind the words themselves to see if there was some substance to them and especially cause them to look back on those words as they get older. Now, to tie this together, after our children make a confession of faith, look for that fruit or look for those works that can save as evidences of their salvation. The next part of lesson three. Part three, spiritual hunger and thirst. Spiritual hunger and thirst. Well, I wish I could have, or well, I wish I would have, maybe a better way to say it, well, I wish I would have gotten saved earlier in life. One of the advantages 
which maybe many of you who got saved later in life can appreciate as well, is the observation of a dramatic change. And so for me, I look back 20 years ago when I first became a Christian, and I can see this very dramatic change that took place in my life. For example, before conversion, I never read the Bible. I didn't read the Bible in the Catholic Church. After conversion, I loved reading the Bible. I loved studying the Bible because after conversion, I had a spiritual hunger and thirst that I did not have previously. Before conversion, I didn't want to pray or go to church. I said I didn't want to. I did. I did pray and I did go to church. I used the word pray loosely because it was more like mindlessly reciting prayers the way that Jesus uh, condemned us reciting them. You know, all the Our Fathers and all the Hail Marys. I would not say that that was, that that was the way that, you know, Christ would want us praying. And I did go to church, but I went to church because I thought that's what I had to do to be saved. I recited those prayers because that's what I thought I had to do to go to heaven. So before conversion, I didn't want to pray. I did not want to go to church. Now, after conversion, I did want to go to church. So here's what was beautiful. Before conversion, I was going to church because that's how I thought I could go to heaven. After conversion, when I was convinced that I was going to heaven because of what Christ did for me and that I knew going to church wouldn't save me, then I wanted to go to church as an outpouring of my thankfulness for Christ and what he had done for me and a desire to worship him. So there was this spiritual hunger or thirst that was not there previously. And I mention this because children often don't have the luxury, or we as parents don't have the luxury of seeing this very dramatic change with our, our children. Now, it's not to say we don't see changes with our children, but for me, it's like, you know, I'm 22, and I've never read the Bible, and I don't have any interest in reading the Bible. I'm 23, and I'm, I'm really enjoying reading the Bible, and now I want to read the, now I want to teach the Bible versus teaching math and, and science and things in elementary school. That's not, you don't have a four-year-old child and you say, you know, when, when Johnny was four, he never wanted to read the Bible, and now that he's five, he always wants to read the Bible, right? So don't quite get to have, have that same, the same dramatic change to witness. It's not the easiest thing to see, but we can still look, even if we can't see those dramatic changes, we can still look for spiritual hunger and thirst in our children. And I want to show you where this is made clear in Scripture. Go ahead and turn to John 4. A few different accounts making this clear that Christians have a spiritual hunger and, hunger and thirst. This is the account when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. She's drawing this physical water, but Jesus draws her attention to the spiritual water that he's offering. Look at verse 13, John 4, 13. Jesus said to her, he makes this contrast, he says, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the water in the well, is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will, notice this, it will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And those words, in him a spring of water welling up, reveal why people have a spiritual thirst and it's satisfied. Let me say this one more time. Those words, in him a spring of water welling up, reveal why people have a spiritual thirst that is satisfied. There is this fountain in us, referring to the Holy Spirit, that is providing this endless supply of water. Now, this woman didn't understand it. In verse 15, she said to him, 
sir, give me this water, thinking Jesus is speaking physically, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She doesn't want to have to, she's, she's well-meaning, she's sincere, but she doesn't know he means spiritually. She doesn't want to have to return to this well each day and, and keep coming out and carting this water back to, her, back to her home. Now, hold this in mind. Turn two chapters to the right to John 6 to see something very similar. Here's the context. Jesus feeds the 5,000. They tell their friends, who probably tell their friends who tell their friends, and then soon there's this much larger crowd that is following Christ around. And he knows that they're only following him because they're physically hungering and thirsting. Now, he wants them spiritually hungering and thirsting. And so look what he says in verse 35 as he tries to move them from the physical to the spiritual. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, he's clearly not talking about physically, but he's talking spiritually, very similar to what he said at the woman at the well. Now, you could look at this and you can say, well, this says that we won't have a spiritual hunger and thirst. Yes, that's correct. We will not have a spiritual hunger and thirst because Christ has satisfied it. That's the point. We are not going to have that emptiness or that we will have the hunger and thirst, spiritually speaking, satisfied because of Christ. And I've shared this, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but after I became a Christian, I never hungered and thirsted again, spiritually speaking, in that I never wondered what else was out there. I never, I, I didn't wonder if Buddhism was right or Mormonism was right. I became a Christian, the gospel bore witness to me, and, it, and, that, and there was not, I didn't need to entertain anything else. And I know that perhaps I haven't lived or experienced the most dramatic spiritual, you know, Christian life, spiritually speaking. I can't tell you about the miracles that I performed. I'm, I can't tell you about all, any of these charismatic things that have happened, but I can tell you that I have been very satisfied, my spiritual hunger and thirst through Christ. I've never thought that I wasn't getting enough from the Word of God. I've never thought that that worshiping God in song was not enough for me and that I needed something beyond that. And that's what this is talking about. Now, you see a good example of what it looks like when people don't have a spiritual hunger and thirst. Later in this chapter, look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. And why did that happen? Jesus continued this discussion of him being the bread of life or of him being the bread that they should be desiring, and they weren't interested in that. They had no spiritual hunger. And so as soon as they knew that their physical hunger wouldn't be satisfied, they said, we want nothing more to do with him. And so this is what it looks like when there's no spiritual hunger or thirst whatsoever, then there's no interest in Christ. And what does this mean? Actually, let me give you one more example from the Beatitudes. We're probably most familiar with the Beatitudes, which mean blessings, from, math, from Matthew's gospel and his version of the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke also has an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount, and instead of having the eight Beatitudes that Matthew has, he has four Beatitudes followed by four woes. Now, one of the mistakes that we make with the Beatitudes is we read them as though they are imperatives versus indicatives. We think that they are commands versus statements. Or we look at them and we think that Jesus is telling us to do something 
when he's actually telling us something about ourselves. So when we read the Beatitudes, don't read them as though this is what you're supposed to do. Read them as this is what Jesus is saying about us, about believers in the Beatitudes and about unbelievers in the woe. So the first one, Luke 6, 21, he says, blessed are you who are hungry now, spiritually hungry, for you shall be satisfied. And so he says the believers are going to have this spiritual hunger, the accompanying woe, Luke 6, 25. Woe to you who are full now or who do not have this spiritual hunger, for you shall be hungry. So he says unbelievers don't have this spiritual hunger. Another verse making this point, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John says if we have a love or a hunger for the things of the world, then the love of God is not in us, which is to say we're not Christians. John three nineteen, light has come into the world. People loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus says unbelievers love or hunger for the world versus for Christ. And if they do, then that's evidence they're, they're not believers. Now let's kind of tie this together and apply this to our children. Here's another way to look at it. It is not just about our kids hungering and thirsting for Christ. It is also about what our children do not hunger and thirst for. So look for a spiritual hunger and thirst in your children, but let's also make sure that we're looking that they don't hunger and thirst for the world, or at least not too much because there's, all, there's a part of all of us that are drawn to the world. We all are cloaked in flesh. And, and I think that's one of the points that I want to make here. I mean, one of the difficulties with this is if someone's listening and they say, well, I, I mean, I am tempted by the world. I am somewhat drawn to it. Does that mean that I'm not a Christian? No, that's not what it means. And just like if someone is listening and they say, well, spiritual hunger and thirst, and I, I don't always want to read my Bible, and I don't always want to pray, and I don't always want to go to church. No, but even the most mature believer doesn't always want to pray, doesn't always want to read the Bible, and doesn't always want to go to church. So if you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, yesterday I woke up, I knew I was supposed to read my Bible, and I didn't want to do it, that must mean I'm not a Christian. That's not at all what I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to create, that sort of fear here. But I am saying this. If you wake up every day and you never want to read your Bible— and you never want to pray, and you never want to go to church, that's evidence you're not a Christian. There's no way that someone who has been regenerated, brought to life by the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, saved by Christ, could never desire to worship Him. Now, if we have children that say, we are Christians, I am a Christian, I want to be baptized, but they never have a heart to worship the Christ that saved them, they are not Christians. And then we have a responsibility as parents to talk to them and not even necessarily condemn them for that, but just share with them and say, you know, I'm, let's talk a little bit more about why it is you want to, you want to be baptized. Tell me about your time in the Word. Tell me about your, your devotional time. Tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about, our, you know, what, I mean, those are, those are the questions I'm, I have with my children at a very young age. They're basically anticipating it now. You know, if we go out to eat or, for, or we're driving in the car, they know that's going to be one of the first questions. How are things spiritually for you? What does your time in the Word look like? What does your prayer life look like? And I don't expect my children to say, you know, Daddy, yesterday I was praying for eight hours and I wish it would have been nine. You know, or I, I memorized 15 verses and I, that's, not, that's not my point, but I'm saying when we're talking to our children, if we see absolutely zero spiritual hunger and thirst, then we should not be convinced that they're Christians. And that's not to say that they won't become Christians. 
It's just to say that we need to be praying for their salvation more, and we need to be sharing the gospel with them more. And it's also to say that they should not be baptized. Yet, and I would also say that as adults, these are good things for us to be thinking about. When was, it's because it can sound so legalistic to say, well, when was the last time you read your Bible? It's not that reading your Bible saves you, but saved people want to read their Bibles. Saved people want to pray, you know, not four or five hours per day or something like that, but they do want to pray. They are thankful for what Christ has done, and if that never can be said of your life, then I mean this as lovingly as possible. You really need to consider where you're at spiritually. Now, I want to close by reminding you of our Lord's words. This is what he said, you must be born again. That's very strong language. He didn't say you might want to think about being born again, or it would probably be a good idea if you were born again. He said, you must be born again. So our children must be born again. They must be new creations. And if they are new creations, then there will be evidence of that. And then the next step for them, the next step after conversion or after salvation is to be baptized. We'll talk about that over the next few weeks, but start having these conversations with your children as we start heading toward Easter service. Now, if you have any questions about anything I've shared, if, if um, you know, I could pray with you, if I could talk, if you, if you want to talk about anything with your children, I would consider it a real privilege. If you want to, if you had a child, you wanted to come up and you want to have a conversation together, and there's any way that I can come alongside or, or um, support you as, as your pastor and the parenting of your children, that would be a privilege. But my desire is to help the parents parent their, parent their children. My desire is to, is to help you be the godliest mother and father that you can be so your children, just like I want to see wives look up to their, to their husbands so we can have children that look up to their parents and hold them in high regard. Father, we thank you for baptism and this wonderful, beautiful reminder of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and what a privilege it is for us to be able to physically speak to the world about what has transpired with us spiritually as we identify with his death, burial, and resurrection physically through, through immersion in water. We know that that has already transpired for us believers spiritually speaking, and so we thank you for that, Lord, and we don't take it lightly, and we we desire that our children who are Christians would be baptized, and we desire that our children who are not Christians or not yet Christians would not be baptized. And so help us as parents, especially parents with younger children, to navigate through this and to raise our children well. And I pray for anyone here who's listening who is a believer that as they consider these evidences, they can be confident in their salvation and what Christ has done for them. And for anyone who is listening and they're not a believer, that they heard these evidence and it's, it's causing them to question where they're at spiritually. And if, that they are, if they are unsaved, Lord, that you would save them, that you grant them repentance and faith in Christ. We would never want to be deceived about something as serious as our salvation, Lord. And so we pray that, that you would reveal to us where we're at and help us to make any appropriate steps that, that would be needed in our lives, Lord. But more than anything, we recognize that we can't save ourselves. We can't in our own effort do anything it's only a work of your Holy Spirit regenerating us, Lord, and so we pray for that. We cry out to you if we are unsaved, and we pray for you to save us, Lord. We thank you that you are a saving God. Grant us repentance from our sins and faith in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.